You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I got to see some friends I haven't seen in quite a while. I think one of them I hadn't seen in like a year. So that was great. I stayed out too late. And now it's time for my chill Saturday afternoon when I make a podcast episode. So let's get into it. No movie theater movie reviews this week as the only one I saw was Dungeons and Dragons again uh, with a group of friends. So haven't got, had time to get to go do anything else. So I guess we're just going to go straight on into uh, this week's topic. This month, we're separating fact from fiction for some of the greatest musical biopics about some of the greatest, or in some cases infamous, bands of all time. This week, we'll take a brief look at the history of the psychedelic rock band The Doors and the film that was inspired by their story. We'll also look into how accurate the film is to what actually happened in reality. Hopefully you can't hear the birds. The birds decided to start singing right now. So if you can hear them in the microphone, enjoy that lovely background because I don't think there's anything I can do about it and they don't seem to be wanting to stop. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Be quiet, birds. Yeah, it's springtime. They're not going to stop. So our story begins at the height of the hippie counterculture's influence in the United States on a July night in Venice Beach, California. It was 1965, and two recently graduated UCLA students recognized each other from across the bar. Their names were Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek. Jim told Ray about songs he'd been writing. Film wasn't quite working out the way he wanted it to, as that's what both of them had studied in college. And Ray managed to convince Jim to sing the opening words to what would one day become the song Moonlight Drive. The lyrics went, quote, Let's swim to the moon, let's climb through the tide, penetrate the evening that the city sleeps to hide. Ray was inspired by Jim's lyrics, thinking of the music he could play to accompany the, quote, cool and spooky lyrics. At this time, Jim Morrison, who'd grown up the oldest son of a decorated Navy man, was living the full 1960s bohemian lifestyle. According to Ray, he lived on a friend's roof, literally the roof, and survived on a diet of, quote, LSD and beans. Meanwhile, Ray was playing keyboards in the band Rick and the Ravens with his brothers, which would ultimately spin off into the doors when Jim entered the picture. The brothers would leave the band after recording a six-song demo in September of that year. 
Well, on a transcendental meditation lecture, Ray would recruit guitarist Robbie Krieger and drummer John Deshmore. By the end of 1965, the four would make up the lineup of the band The Doors. Jim was not a professional singer, something he was self-conscious of for the majority of his musical career. Robbie had only been playing electric guitar for six months. He'd played flamenco guitar before that, so he didn't use a pick. And John had started out in a marching band before becoming a rock and roll drummer. Somehow they would take those hodgepodge groups of skills and turn it into one of the greatest rock bands that ever was. After a year of gigging, on August 10th, 1966, the Doors were discovered by Elektra Records president Jack Holtzman while working as the house band for the famous Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. Holtzman and producer Paul A. Rothschild saw two sets of theirs and signed them a mere eight days later, which was good because the doors were fired from the whiskey on August 21st after Jim, recently pulled from his hotel in the midst of tripping on acid, added an especially sweary recount of the Greek myth Oedipus to the song The End. The Doors' self-titled debut came out in January 1967, featuring famous songs like Light My Fire and the aforementioned The End. Light My Fire would become Elektra Records' first Billboard number 1 hit, so therefore also for The Doors. The band was sent on a whirlwind tour of the continental United States, which included The Ed Sullivan Show, from which the band would be banned after Jim neglected to amend lyrics of Light My Fire as requested by the network. That hardly mattered, though, because seemingly overnight, the doors were a sensation. And Jim, above all of the other members, relished being in the spotlight. The band's performances eventually spawned feral behavior from audience members, and footage of the band can be found quite easily playing on stage in the early days, featuring a half a dozen or so police actively on stage trying to handle the throbbing mobs. Nine months later, the band releases their second album, Strange Days, cementing themselves as one of the biggest rock bands in the United States. This album was released so quickly, only nine months after their first, to capitalize on the fact that they were becoming crazy popular. In late 1967, during a concert in New Haven, Connecticut, Jim was arrested on stage in an incident that further added to his mystique and emphasized his budding rebellious image. Prior to the show, a police officer had found Jim and a woman in the showers backstage. Not recognizing the singer, the policeman ordered him to leave, to which Jim replied, either eat me or F you, depending on the source. He was subsequently pepper sprayed by the officer and the show was delayed until everything could be sorted out. Once Jim took to the stage, eyes still burning from the effects of the mace, he told the concert goers in vivid detail what had happened, and the New Haven Police Department responded by arresting him for indecency and public obscenity, but the charges were later dropped. This event made Jim Morrison the first rock performer to ever be arrested on stage. After this, it's been argued by many music historians that concertgoers came to Doors concerts for the spectacle more so than for the music. By the recording of their fourth album, Soft Parade, in the spring of 1968, the Lizard King, a.k.a. Jim Morrison's, drug and alcohol dependency was affecting the album getting made. That album would contain their last number one hit in the United States. This album also marked the first time that the writing credits were split up between group members, mainly between Robbie and Jim, while before all songwriting had been credited to just The Doors. 
1968, 1969-ish, Jim decided to quit the band to focus on his poetry at his girlfriend Pamela Corzin's insistence. He was convinced by his bandmates to give it six more months. Shortly after that, they approached him about his drinking. Jim attempted to change his behavior and managed to remain sober for one whole week. By this point, Jim's alter ego of who he became when he drinks even had its own name, Jimbo, Jimbo Morrison. On March 1st, 1969, at the Dinner Key Auditorium in the Coconut Grove neighborhood of Miami, Florida, the Doors gave the most controversial performance of their career. The venue was a converted seaplane hangar that had no air conditioning, so it was hot as hell, and the seats had been removed by the promoter to boost ticket sales. So it's very hot, there's nowhere to sit unless you want to sit to the ground and potentially get trampled, so, you know, not the greatest place to keep people in super chill moods. And Jim Morrison's actions were not going to help matters. He had been drinking all day and fighting with his girlfriends and had missed three different connecting flights to Miami. By the time he arrived, he was obviously very drunk. The concert was over an hour late and everybody was hot and cranky. The crowd of 12,000 packed into a facility designed to hold just about half that was then subjected to random silences in Morrison's singing, which strained the music from the beginning of the performance. Morrison had recently attended a play by an experimental acting company that was inspired by their quote-unquote antagonistic style of performance art. You know who you probably shouldn't antagonize? People who stood in a hot hangar for hours waiting for you to show up so they could listen to you sing, and then you don't sing, you just weirdly pause in your songs. Morrison also taunted the crowd for good measure, shouting things like, quote, love me. I can't take it no more without no good love. And after someone in the crowd threw a bucket of orange paint, quote, you're all a bunch of effing idiots. As the band began their second song, Morrison started shouting in protest, which forced the band to stop playing. At one point, Morrison removed the hat of an onstage police officer and threw it into the crowd. Things did not improve from there. There was a guy carrying a sheep around. Yes, an actual sheep. And there are pictures online if you want to go find them. Somebody got on the stage and poured champagne on Jim, which prompted him to take his shirt off. Then he implored the audience to also get naked. Several obliged. And Jim covered his crotch with his shirt and simulated exactly what you think he did. The concert was put to a stop after just four-ish songs. Because Florida, four days later, the Dade County Sheriff's Office issued a warrant for Jim's arrest, claiming that he exposed his penis while on stage, shouted obscenities to the crowd, simulated oral sex on Robbie, and was drunk at the time of his performance, which, you know, last one's true. But no concrete images of the lewd acts exist, and the only person who claimed to see Jim's family jewels was related to the arresting officer. Despite all this, Jim was convicted and sentenced to four or six months in jail, depending on the source, with hard labor and ordered to pay a $500 fine. Morrison remained free, though, pending an appeal of his conviction. As conservatism began to surge in protest of the counterculture, even the rock and roll press turned a negative eye toward the doors. Radio stations stopped playing their music, and every major city left on their tour canceled their date with the doors. So what did they do? Went back and recorded another album. During the recording of their fifth album, Jim got in trouble after harassing airline staff during a flight to Phoenix to see the Rolling Stones perform. Both Jim and his traveling companion were charged with, quote, interfering with the flight of an intercontinental aircraft and public drunkenness. These charges were also dropped. 
Also around this time, Jim was taking the sudden deaths of musician friends Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, who both died of drug overdoses at the age of 27, incredibly hard. He reportedly told people that they were looking at number three, meaning himself, as his 27th birthday was just around the corner, and if anything, his drug use was ramping up. For good measure, he added cocaine to the roster of his drug carousel. The band's last album, as the four original members of The Doors, was L.A. Woman, which was recorded in just a week, and was an attempt to get back to their bluesy roots. During The Doors' last public performance with Jim Morrison at the Warehouse in New Orleans on December 12, 1970, Morrison apparently had a breakdown on stage. Midway through the set, he slammed the microphone onto the stage several times until the platform beneath him was destroyed. Then he sat down, or laid down depending on the source, I have saw pictures of him lying down, and refused to perform for the remainder of the show. After the concert, the other three members of the band decided to end their live careers, so they would no longer perform live as the Doors, citing their mutual agreement that Jim was ready to retire from live performance. On March 13, 1971, near the end of the mixing of the album L.A. Woman, Jim took a leave of absence from The Doors and moved to Paris with his girlfriend Pamela Corzin. He planned to concentrate on his poetry, which he was very passionate about, while she'd run a boutique clothes shop. They also thought they'd stop drinking and once and for all get their lives together. And for a while there, everything was okay. Jim shaved the beard he'd grown to hide his weight gain. L.A. Woman came out in the United States and was heralded as their comeback album. But Jim never stopped drinking and developed a chronic cough to which a doctor told him to stop drinking or his condition was going to continue to get worse. On July 3rd, 1971, after a day of drinking, Jim Morrison was found dead in the bathtub by his girlfriend. Despite the absence of an official autopsy, the reason of death was listed as heart failure. He was laid to rest in the Poets' Corner of Pere Lachaise Cemetery in Paris on June 7th. Jim completed the prophecy, dying at just 27 years of age, becoming one of the founders of the 27 Club, though there are earlier inductees post the origination of the phenomenon's naming, which came more or less as a result of the deaths of Joplin, Hendrix, and Jim Morrison. In 1974, Corzin also died at the age of 27. The Doors continued on as a band for several years, releasing another three albums, but it just wasn't the same without their charismatic frontman. Of course, the film The Doors focuses on the Jim Morrison era of the band. The Doors sold 80 million albums during the 54 months they were together, and according to the documentary When You're Strange, continue to sell a million albums a year as of the doc's release in 2010. For years after the death of Jim Morrison, several filmmakers, including Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, and William Friedkin, had all expressed interest in potentially making a film based on the lives of Jim Morrison and the band The Doors. In 1985, Columbia acquired the story rights from The Doors and The Morrison Estate to make such a film. Producer Sasha Harari was brought on board to make that happen, and he wanted Oliver Stone to write the screenplay, but initially never heard back from his agent. After two unsatisfactory scripts were produced, Imagine Films took over for Columbia in overseeing day-to-day production. Columbia was still the distributor. Harari contacted Stone again, this time successfully, and the director met with the surviving band members, telling them he only wanted to keep one wild scene from the earlier drafts of the script. The group was angered by this and exercised their right of refusal. Oliver Stone would not write this movie. Spoiler alert, he did, with co-writer J. Randall Johnson. 
The project had changed hands by 1989, and this time it was placed in the hands of Caroloco Pictures. Like Harari, the producers brought on at this studio also wanted Stone, but to direct in addition to writing. Lucky for them, the Doors had had a change of heart. They'd seen Stone's recent film, Platoon, which had come out three years prior and a year after their initial meeting, and were impressed by what they'd seen. Stone agreed to make the film after his next project, Vita, but that fell apart and opened him up to start pre-production on this film. Stone was familiar with the band, having first heard them in 1967 while serving overseas during the Vietnam War. Now, for the band's perspective, guitarist Robbie Krieger had always opposed a Doors biopic until Stone had signed on. On the flip side, keyboardist Ray Manzarek had been all for it, but wasn't super stoked about Stone directing and the approach he was planning on taking. As a result, Ray refused to sign off on it, but the film went forward regardless. According to actor Kyle McLaughlin, who would play Ray in the film, the musician and director weren't on speaking terms as Ray felt like he had to be the keeper of the Doors mythos. Ray stated that he was not asked to consult on the film and had wanted the project to be about all four band members simultaneously and equally, rather than the focus being just on Morrison. Conversely, Stone stated that he repeatedly tried to get Ray involved, but, quote, all he did was rave and shout. He went on for three hours about his point of view. Ray thought he knew better than anybody else. Well, he was there, so, you know, kind of probably did. So I kind of see where he's coming from at that point, but there is such a thing as being too close to the source material, so sort of a double, double-edged sword there. Robbie revealed in his book, Set the Night on Fire, that Ray was allegedly jealous of Stone because he'd wanted to direct the film himself, which makes sense. Jim's parents would only let themselves be portrayed during a dream sequence at the top of the film. It doesn't really read like a dream sequence, but technically, I guess it, I suppose it was if they're saying it was. Pamela Corzin's parents were also consulted about the usage of their daughter. They wanted there to be no suggestion present in the film that their daughter had caused Jim's death, whether directly or indirectly. Stone would find the Corzins the most difficult to deal with because they wanted Pamela to be portrayed as, quote unquote, an angel. While researching the film, Stone read through transcripts of interviews with over 100 people about the band and their lives and just that era in general. He wrote the script in the summer of 1989. Stone first picked songs he wanted to use within the film and then wrote, quote, each piece of the movie as a mood to fit that song. The Corsons did not like Stone's script at all and tried to slow the production down by refusing to allow any of Jim's later poetry to be used in the film. They had the rights to it because when Morrison died, Corzin had gotten the right to Jim's poetry, but when she died, her parents got the rights to it. In the 10 years of development hell preceding all of this, several actors and performers, including Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, John Travolta, Bono of U2, and oddest of all, in my opinion, Richard Gere, were considered or expressed interest in playing the role of Jim Morrison. Stone initially offered the part to Ian Asbury of The Cults, who turned down the role because he was not happy with the way Jim was going to be portrayed within the film. Stone had also had Val Kilmer in mind to play the role after seeing him in Willow, of all things. Kilmer had the same kind of singing voice as Jim Morrison, and to convince Stone further that he was right for the part, Kilmer spent several thousand dollars of his own money and made his own eight-minute audition video, which featured him singing and being made up to look like Jim Morrison throughout various stages of his short life. 
It worked, and Kilmer got the gig. To prepare for the role, Kilmer lost weight and spent six months rehearsing Doors songs every single day. In total, the actor learned 50 songs, only 15 of which would be performed in the film. Kilmer also spent hundreds of hours with the Doors producer, Paul A. Rothschild, who told the actor loads of anecdotes that he thought might help the actor get into the mindset of Jim Morrison. He also helped out with developing some of the idiosyncrasies and pronunciations the late musician had had. Kilmer also met with Robbie and John, but Ray refused to meet with him. All the work paid off, it seems, as when the Doors heard Kilmer singing, they could not tell whether the voice belonged to Kilmer or their friend Jim. Robbie acted as a technical advisor on the film, mainly to show his cinematic counterpart, Frank Whaley, where to put his fingers on the guitar during performance sequences. Similarly, John also acted as a consultant on the film, tutoring Kevin Dillon, who was his alter ego. With a budget of $32 million, The Doors was filmed over 13 weeks, predominantly in and around Los Angeles, Paris, New York City, and the Mojave Desert. Controversy arose during filming when a memo linked to Kilmer circulated among cast and crew, listing several rules of how the actor was to be treated for the duration of principal photography. This set of demands forbade people from approaching him on set without good reason or to stare at him while he was on set. They were also to only call him Jim Morrison while on set. An angry stone contacted Kilmer's agent, and the actor claimed that it was all a huge misunderstanding and that the memo was for his own people and not the film crew. I don't know how that makes that better in his mind, but that is some definitely being in entertainment logic put there. You're still treating someone like shit. Anyway... During the concert scenes, Kilmer did his own singing, performing over the Doors' master tapes just without Morrison's lead vocals. These concert sequences, which took several days to film, were rough on Kilmer's stamina, with Stone stating, quote, his voice would start to deteriorate after two or three takes. One sequence, filmed inside the Whiskey A Go-Go, proved to be more difficult than others due to all the smoke and heat inside, which was caused by the body heat and intense camera lights and obviously the fogger they used to get the illusion of a smoky bar. As a result, the end performance took five days to shoot, spanning 24 takes for Stone to get what he wanted, after which Kilmer was apparently just completely beat. When the film released on March 1st, 1991, it was met with tepid reviews and a disappointing box office. The issue at hand, as one critic put it, was not so much that, quote, Stone dwelled upon Morrison, the inebriate, the philanderer, or the pretentious Lizard King, but rather the, quote, cliched Hollywood devices for sucking the wonder from the pioneering band, actors with fake hair saying silly things, and, quote, a self-important director's turgid attempts to make grand statements about America. The film holds only a 57% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, or critics, critic one anyway, which typically signals to a potential viewer that it's not that great. Having seen this film for the first time this week, I'm inclined to agree. So with all of that in mind, just how accurate is The Doors? No, of course, with any film about anything or anyone that's, a, you know, a true story of any kind, artistic liberties are going to be taken. That's just what happens. Real lives are not laid out in neat act structures, which we generally like to have in our motion pictures. Otherwise, one's mind tends to wander. We all are. Our, our chaos brains are always looking for order and patterns and all of that. 
all that jazz. So you got to put, you know, a film into some kind of coherent A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D and so on. Even if you are doing nonlinear kind of things, you still got to you still got to have a through line that makes some kind of sense. Lives typically don't have that. So when you, you know, you're writing and making a biopic, you got to find them and create them. It's just what happens. Artistic liberty as a result is a necessary evil, but some manage to counterbalance artistic liberties and historical accuracy a little bit more successfully than others. This one... It definitely got away from them quite a bit. And all of it starts with how Jim and Ray met. In the film, the two of them have a chance encounter on the beach while Ray is meditating, not at a bar as what happened in real life. But the exchange that the two have on the beach is pretty similar to what happened in reality. Also, you know, the the pretty, pretty beach is a lot more visually striking than a dark, you know, dive bar from Venice. No offense to dive bar owners in Venice. Anyway, during the Ed Sullivan show sequence, as in reality, Jim Morrison is asked to change a lyric in Light My Fire. The offending word is is higher because in it, you know, alluded to drugs and they didn't want that. So in the film, he's depicted as blatantly ignoring this request, shouting the words higher, yeah, into the camera. In reality, Morrison had simply sung the vocal with the same emphasis as on the record. And according to him, he did that on accident. He later stated that he had every intention of changing the lyric to appease the show's network, but was so nervous about performing on live television that he simply forgot. Ray's recollection of this event differs from Jim's, as he claimed that the band had only pretended to agree to change the words and deliberately played the song with the original lyrics. Kilmer is also attired historically inaccurately. In the scene, he is seen wearing a black shirt, when in reality, Morrison had wore a white shirt and a black leather jacket for this particular performance. Another inaccuracy can be found in the character of a seductive female magazine photographer who, it's been widely reported, is based on 16 magazine editor Gloria Stavers. At the very least, the dialogue from this scene is from an encounter she had with Jim Morrison. This character is portrayed as having taken the famous quote-unquote young lion picture of Jim Morrison in New York City in 1967. In reality, this particular photograph, as well as nearly all of the photographs, publicity photographs more specifically, taken of the band for their first album, all of them were taken by a male photographer in Los Angeles in November of 1966. In the film, the band is shown being fired from the Whiskey A Go-Go without having gotten their record deal. They're actually offered it in the alleyway after they get kicked out of the bar. In reality, they had signed it three days prior to their firing from the Whiskey. In a scene featuring a press conference set in New York City in 1967, when Keneally is first introduced to Morrison, the singer is asked a question regarding, quote, the dreadful reviews your new poetry book has got. At the time, Morrison had not yet published any of his volumes of poetry. Also, I think I forgot, I think I edited this and forgot to mention, Patricia Keneally is... Another one of Jim's lady loves who he married in a hand fasting ceremony. Events that had occurred between Morrison and his maybe wife, Patricia Keneally, were reassigned to Corzin in the film. And Corzin is depicted as saying hostile things to Keneally, when by Keneally's reports, their interactions had always been kind. Keneally is also portrayed as being the girl Morrison was with in the shower backstage before the New Haven concert. Though in the film, it's actually said that it took place in 1968. It took place in 1967. And in reality, this was not Keneally. This was a teenage girl from a local college that Morrison had been with. 
Several acts of violence are shown in the film that are also historically disputed as to whether or not they happened. Specifically, Morrison locking Pamela Corzin in a closet and then setting it on fire, having a violent argument with her during Thanksgiving, a scene where they both threaten each other with a knife, and another of Jim Morrison throwing a television set at Manzarak for licensing the use of the song Light My Fire for a Buick commercial. That did happen. They're saying the TV set was never thrown. Even though Manzarak was always open about Jim's tendency to go into blind rages, those who'd been present during this time agree that the film, and therefore Oliver Stone, took a ton of liberties, creating events that never took place. Stone was also open about this fact and confirmed it during his DVD commentary for the film, specifically confirming that the Thanksgiving scene never took place. Nor did the scene featuring the band members heading to the desert where Morrison encourages them to trip on psychedelic drugs and then kind of acts as a shaman for all of them as they go through the trip. This happens kind of early on in the film. John Densmore is portrayed as hating Morrison when the singer's personal and drug problems begin to dominate his behavior. However, Densmore has stated in his biography, Riders on the Storm, that he never confronted Morrison about his drunken behavior. Robbie, John, and Patricia, like I said earlier, were all technical advisors on the film. However, they have all said that though they were they were giving advice throughout, Stone more often than not chose to ignore them in favor of his own visions of the story. The settings for the film, particularly the concert sequences, are depicted in mostly chronological order, although the crowd scenes contain blatant exaggerations of reality, such as scenes of public nudity, bonfires, group canoodling that never happen in reality. This also includes a scene of a naked woman dancing on the stage, which John says did not happen at any single Doors concert. During the infamous Miami gig sequence, Morrison is shown as leaving the stage to join the audience for a sing-along medley of a couple of songs. This never happened. Prior to the concert, a reporter on the scene makes rude comments about the band's fourth studio album, The Soft Parade, which had not been completed and would not be released until July of that year. Krieger said that he didn't take acid prior to the start of the concert, as depicted in the film, either. During this scene, Jim is heard shouting to the audience, quote, you're all a bunch of effing slaves. But in reality, he actually said, quote, you're all a bunch of effing idiots, though he did call the audience slaves later in the rant. All of the Doors members, to varying degrees, were unhappy with the final product and were said to have heavily criticized Stone's portrayal of Morrison as a, quote, out-of-control sociopath. In a 1991 interview with Gary James, Ray criticized Stone for exaggerating Morrison's alcohol consumption in the movie, saying, quote, It was not about Jim Morrison. It was about Jimbo Morrison, the drunk. God, where was the sensitive poet and the funny guy? The guy I knew was not on that screen. In the afterword of his book, Writers on the Storm, John says that the movie is based on, quote, the myth of Jim Morrison and criticizes the film for betraying Morrison's ideas and poetry as, quote, muddled through the haze of the drink. As the credits point out, and as Stone emphasizes in his DVD commentary, some characters, names, and incidents in the film are fictitious or amalgamations of real people, which is also quite common and another necessary evil when it comes to creating biopics. In the documentary The Road of Excess, Stone states that even Patricia Keneally is a composite of several characters and in retrospect should have been given a fictitious name. Keneally, in particular, was unhappy by her betrayal in the film and strongly objected to a scene in it where Jim states that he did not take their hand-fasting ceremonies seriously. 
Pamela Corzin, however, probably came out smelling more like a rose than she probably deserved. The former Doors think the movie's depiction of her is not accurate at all and describe this version of Corzin as, quote, a cartoon of a girlfriend. Like I mentioned earlier, Corzin's parents had inherited Morrison's poems when their daughter died, and Stone had agreed to restrictions about his betrayal of her in exchange for the rights to use the poetry. So in a way, his hands were kind of tied if he wanted to have access to everything. This included, of course, taking away any allusions to the fact that Corzin may have caused Morrison's death. In reality, Elaine Renee, a close friend of Morrison's since his college days, and Corzin herself both stated that she was responsible for Jim's death. In Writers on the Storm, John says that Corzin said she felt terribly guilty because she had obtained drugs that she believed had either caused or contributed to her boyfriend's death. Based on all of this, the doors, I'd say, land somewhere around the 60 to 70 percent range as far as historical accuracy is concerned. It's definitely more accurate than what we're covering next week. Let's just put it that way. It's still got a lot wrong, but it's it's the the general energies there. I know the band's unhappy with it, but I think they were more often than not just kind of being protective of their friends, which, you know, I get. Jim Morrison and The Doors continue to be rock and roll icons to this day, and even if you don't know their songs as theirs, you've definitely heard their music extensively. The Lizard King's voice continues to drone through the airwaves over 50 years after his untimely demise, and will continue to do so for at least 50 years to come. I can do anything! Mr. Morrison, I'd like to go make a record. Sure, why not? Jim Morrison, the god of rock. that it would be untrue. The network have told us that they have a problem with the lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. They asked if you could say, girl, we can't get much better. Girl, we couldn't get much higher. Yeah! I love it when you sing to me. I'm the poet and you're my muse. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account which features my watch list, film diaries, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you just buy me a coffee. I didn't have a coffee today because I had a very slow morning because I was out till two in the morning like a heathen in my 20s when I'm a old person in my 30s. So I'm having a smoothie with a bunch of green crap in it because that's what you have to do when you live in L.A. and you're in your 30s and you drink last night. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we separate fact from fiction from the 2018 film Bohemian Rhapsody and the band that inspired that film, Queen. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. 